Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Tea and Old Books, where we're reading The Circular Staircase by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This is day three of the Spanish lockdown, and I am ready to read some of this book. I've been waiting all day to do it. The builders outside have been making so much noise that I haven't been able to. So I've sat down, I've got some tea, and I'm ready to read some early 20th century crime fiction. Yes, please. So the tea I'm drinking today is a lemon and ginger tea that I've added honey to. I've got a little bit of a cough, so hopefully I'm not sick, but a little bit of a cough, and so this drink will nice and soothe my throat, hopefully. I've added some honey to it as well. Also, because it's later in the day, I didn't want to drink any caffeine. So, yesterday, in the first episode, we read the first two chapters of The Circular Staircase. So what's happened so far? It's been kind of easing into it. So, so far, in a quick summary, we've had Rachel, the main character who is narrating the story, has rented a summer house and she's living there. She's just moved there with Libby, who I think might be her maid or her, like, her companion or something. I definitely think she's paid staff. Um, and, and so she's not there like, under her own will. Um, so they're living in there in the house. Rachel's niece and nephew are going to join, but they haven't arrived yet. Um, she's been having trouble getting servants because of the rumours. There are strange noises in the night, including the sound of something falling down a staircase. And there are rumours of ghosts. And then in the end of the second chapter, we had Libby had just found a cufflink inside a laundry basket, which is definitely a clue of some sort. So I forgot to mention yesterday that Mary Roberts Reinhardt is often called the American Agatha Christie, which I must confess, when I read that, I was like, I need to read this book because I love Agatha Christie. Also in the book, there are very long sentences, so I apologise if I run out of breath partway through one. And also the accents, so every now and then there's a character who their accent has been written into the book. Um... And I don't know what the accent is supposed to be. So I'm just reading it and I apologise. This is an American book. I'm British. So, and I can't do accents. I, yeah, what can we say? So, let's move on. Another sip of tea. Okay, chapter three. Mr. John Bailey appears. Who is he going to be? We're going to find out. I had dinner served in the breakfast room. Somehow the dining room depressed me, and Thomas, cheerful enough all day, allowed his spirits to go down with the sun. He had a habit of watching the corners of the room, left shadowy by the candles on the table, and altogether it was not a festive meal. Dinner over, I went into the living room. I had three hours before the children could possibly arrive, and I got out my knitting. I had brought along two dozen pairs of slipper soles in assorted sizes. I always send knitted slippers to the old lady's home at Christmas, and now I sorted over the wools with a grim determination not to think about the night before. But my mind was not on my work. At the end of the half hour, I found I had put a row of blue scallops on Eliza Cliffenfelter's lavender slippers, and I put them away. I got out the cufflink and went with it to the pantry. 
Thomas was wiping silver and the air was heavy with tobacco smoke. I sniffed and looked around, but there was no pipe to be seen. Thomas, I said, you have been smoking. No, ma'am. He was injured innocence itself. It's on my coat, ma'am. Over at the club, the gentleman... But Thomas did not finish. The pantry was suddenly filled with the odour of singeing cloth. Thomas gave a clutch at his coat, whirled to the sink, filled a tumbler with water and poured it into his right pocket with the celerity of practice. Thomas, I said, when he was sheepishly mopping the floor. Smoking is a filthy and injurious habit. If you must smoke, you must. But don't don't stick a lighted pipe in your pocket again. Your skin's your own. You can blister it if you like, but this house is not mine and I don't want a conflagration. Did you ever see this cufflink before? No, he never had, he said, but he looked at it oddly. I picked it up in the hall, I added indifferently. The old man's eyes were shrewd under his bushy eyebrows. There's strange goings on here, Miss Innes, he said, shaking his head. Something's going to happen, sure. You ain't took notice that the big clock in the hall is stopped, I reckon. Nonsense, I said. Clocks have to stop, don't they? If they're not wound? It's wound up all right, and it stopped at three o'clock last night, he answered solemnly. More than that, that there clock ain't stopped for fifteen years, not since Mr Armstrong's first wife died. And that ain't all, no ma'am. Last three nights I slept in this place. After the electrics went out, I had a token. My oil lamp was full of oil, but it kept going out. Do what I would. Minute I shut my eyes, out that lamp go... There ain't no sure token of death. The Bible says, let your light shine. That is all in capitals. When a hand you can't see puts your lights out, it means death, sure. The old man's voice was full of conviction. In spite of myself, I had a chilly sensation in the small of my back, and I left him mumbling over his dishes. Later on, I heard a crash from the pantry, and Liddy reported that Balua, who was coal black, had darted in front of Thomas just as he picked up a tray of dishes, that the bad omen had been too much for him and he had dropped the tray. The chug of the automobile as it climbed the hill was the most welcome sound I had heard for a long time, and with Gertrude and Halsey actually before me, my trouble seemed over for good. Gertrude stood smiling in the hall with her hat quite over one ear and her hair in every direction under her pink veil. Gertrude is a very pretty girl, no matter how her hat is, and I was not surprised when Halsey presented a good-looking young man who bowed at me and looked at Trude, that is the ridiculous nickname Gertrude brought from school. I have brought a guest, Aunt Ray, Halsey said. I want you to adopt him into your affections and your Saturday to Monday list. Let me present John Bailey. Ah, only you must call him Jack. In twelve hours he'll be calling you Aunt. I know him. We shook hands and I got a chance to look at Mr Bailey. He was a tall fellow, perhaps thirty, and he wore a small moustache. I remember wondering why. He seemed to have a good mouth and when he smiled his teeth were above the average. One never knows why certain men cling to a messy upper lip that must get into things, any more than one understands some women building up their hair on wire atrocities. Otherwise, he was very good to look at, stalwart and tanned, with a direct gaze that I like. I am particular about Mr Bailey, because he was a prominent figure in what happened later. Gertrude was tired with the trip and went up to bed very soon. I made up my mind to tell them nothing until the next day, and then to make as light of our excitement as possible. After all, what had I to tell? An inquisitive face peering in a window, a crash in the night, a scratch or two on the stairs, and half a cuff button. As for Thomas and his forebodings, it was always my belief that a negro is one part thief, one part pigment, and the rest superstition. It was a Saturday night. 
The two men went to the billiard room, and I could hear them talking as I went upstairs. It seemed that Halsey had stopped at the Greenwood Club for gasoline and found Jack Bailey there, with the Sunday golf crowd. Mr Bailey had not been hard to persuade, probably Gertrude knew why, and they had carried him off triumphantly. I roused Liddy to get them something to eat. Thomas was beyond reach in the lodge and paid no attention to her evident terror of the kitchen regions. Then I went to bed. The men were still in the billiard room when I finally dozed off, and the last thing I remember was the howl of a dog in front of the house. It wailed a crescendo of woe that trailed off, hopefully, only to break out afresh from a new point on the compass. At three o'clock in the morning, I was roused by a revolver shot. The sound seemed to come from just outside my door. For a moment, I could not move. Then I heard Gertrude stirring in her room, and the next moment she had thrown open the connecting door. "'Oh, Aunt Ray! Aunt Ray!' she cried hysterically. "'Someone has been killed! Killed!' "'Thieves,' I said shortly. "'Thank goodness there are some men in the house tonight.' I was getting into my slippers and a bathrobe, and Gertrude, with shaking hands, was lighting a lamp. Then we opened the door into the hall, where, crowded on the upper landing of the stairs, the maids, white-faced and trembling, were peering down, headed by Liddy. I was greeted by a series of low screams and questions, and I tried to quiet them. Gertrude had dropped on a chair and sat there limp and shivering. I went at once across the hall to Halsey's room and knocked. Then I pushed the door open. It was empty. The bed had not been occupied. He must be in Mr Bailey's room, I said excitedly, and followed by Liddy, we went there. Like Halsey's, it had not been occupied. Gertrude was on her feet now, but she leaned against the door for support. They have been killed, she gasped. Then she caught me by the arm and dragged me towards the stairs. They may only be hurt, and we must find them, she said, her eyes dilated with excitement. I don't remember how we got down the stairs. I do remember expecting every moment to be killed. The cook was at the telephone upstairs calling the Greenwood Club, and Liddy was behind me, afraid to come and not daring to stay behind. We found the drawing room and drawing room undisturbed. Somehow I felt that whatever we found would be in the card room or on the staircase, and nothing but the fear that Halsey was in danger drove me on. With every step my knees seemed to give way under me. Gertrude was ahead, and in the card room she stopped, holding her candle high. Then she pointed silently to the doorway into the hall beyond. Huddled there on the floor, face down with his arms extended, was a man. Gertrude ran forward with a gasping sob. Jack! she cried. Oh, Jack! Liddy had run screaming, and the two of us were there alone. It was Gertrude who turned him over finally so we could see his white face, and then she drew a deep breath and dropped limply to her knees. It was the body of a man, a gentleman, in a dinner coat and white waistcoat, stained now with blood. The body of a man I had never seen before. And that's the end of chapter three. Ooh, we've had our first death, but it's not the butler like I thought it was going to be. It's somebody else, and we don't even know who. I need more tea for this. It's too exciting. So, yeah, let's continue. Chapter four. Where is Halsey? Gertrude gazed at the face in a kind of fascination. Then she put out her hands blindly, and I thought she was going to faint. He has killed him, she muttered, almost inarticulately, and at that, because my, knee my nerves were going, I gave her a good shake. What do you mean, I said frantically. There was a depth of grief and conviction in her tone that was worse than anything she could have said. The shake braced her anyhow, and she seemed to pull herself together, but not another word would she say. 
she stood gazing down at that gruesome figure on the floor, while Liddy, ashamed of her flight and afraid to come back alone, drove before her three terrified woman servants into the drawing room, which was as near as any of them would venture. Once in the drawing room, Gertrude collapsed and went from one fainting spell into another. I had all I could do to keep Liddy from drowning her with cold water and the maids huddled in a corner, as much use as so many sheep. In a short time, although it seemed hours, a car came rushing up and Anne Watson, who had waited to dress, opened the door. Three men from the Greenwood Club, all in kinds of costumes, hurried in. I recognised the Mr Jarvis, but the others were strangers. What's wrong? the Jarvis man asked, and we made a strange picture, no doubt. Nobody hurt is there, he was looking at Gertrude. Worse than that, Mr Jarvis, I said. I think it is murder. At the word, there was a commotion. The cook began to cry, and Mrs Watson knocked over a chair. The men were visibly impressed. Not any member of the family, Mr Jarvis asked, when he had got his breath. No, I said, and motioning Liddy to look after Gertrude, I led the way with the lamp to the card room door. One of the men gave an exclamation, and they all hurried across the room. Mr Jarvis took the lamp from me. I remember that, and then, feeling myself getting dizzy and light-headed, I closed my eyes. When I opened them, their brief examination was over, and Mr Jarvis was trying to put me in a chair. "'You must get upstairs,' he said firmly. "'You and Miss Gertrude, too. This has been a terrible shock. In his own home, too.' I stared at him without comprehension. "'Who is it?' I asked, with difficulty. There was a band drawn tight around my throat. "'It is Arnold Armstrong,' he said, looking at me oddly. "'And he has been murdered in his father's house.' After a minute, I gathered myself together, and Mr Jarvis helped me into the living room. Liddy had got Gertrude upstairs, and the two strange men from the club stayed with the body. The reaction from the shock and strain was tremendous. I was collapsed, and then Mr Jarvis asked me a question that brought me back my wandering faculties. Where is Halsey? he asked. Halsey! Suddenly Gertrude's stricken face rose before me. Where was Halsey? He was here, wasn't he? Mr Jarvis persisted. He stopped at the club on his way over. I don't know where he is, I said feebly. One of the men from the club came in, asked for a telephone, and I could hear him excitedly talking, saying something about coroners and detectives. Mr Jarvis leaned over to me. Why don't you trust me, Miss Innes, he said. If I can do anything, I will, but tell me the whole thing. I did finally from the beginning, and when I told of Jack Bailey's being in the house that night, he gave a long whistle. I wish they both were here, he said when I finished. Whatever mad prank took them away, it would look better if they were here, especially... Especially what? Especially since Jack Bailey and Arnold Armstrong were notoriously bad friends. It was Bailey who got Arnold into trouble last spring, something about the bank. And then, to... Go on, I said. If there is anything more, I ought to know. There's nothing more, he said evasively. There's just one more thing we may bank on, Miss Innes. Any court in the country will acquit a man who kills an intruder in his house at night. If Halsey... Why, you don't think Halsey did it, I exclaimed. There was a queer feeling of physical nausea coming over me. No, no, not at all, he said with forced cheerfulness. Come, Miss Innes, you're a ghost of yourself, and I'm going to help you upstairs and call your maid. This has been too much for you. Liddy helped me back to bed, and under the impression that I was in danger of freezing to death, put a hot water bottle over my heart and another at my feet. Then she left me. It was early dawn now, and from voices under my window I surmised that Mr Jarvis and his companions were searching the grounds. As for me, I lay in bed with every faculty awake. Where had Halsey gone? How had he gone and when? Before the murder, no doubt, but who would believe that? 
If either he or Jack Bailey had heard an intruder in the house and shot him, as they might have been justified in doing, why had they run away? The whole thing was unheard of, outrageous and impossible to ignore. About six o'clock, Gertrude came in. She was fully dressed and I sat up nervously. Poor auntie, she said. What a shocking night you have had. She came over and sat down on the bed and I saw she looked very tired and worn. Is there anything new? I asked anxiously. Nothing. The car is gone, but Warner, he is the chauffeur. Warner is at the lodge and knows nothing about it. Well, I said, if I ever get my hands on Halsey Innes, I shall not let him go until I have told him a few things. When we get this cleared up, I am going back to the city to be quiet. One more night like the last two will end me. The peace of the country, fiddlesticks. Whereupon I told Gertrude of the noises the night before and the figure on the veranda in the east wing. As an afterthought, I brought out the pearl cufflink. I have no doubt now, I said, that it was Arnold Armstrong the night before last too. He had a key, no doubt, but why should he steal into his father's house? I cannot imagine. He could have come with my permission easily enough. Anyhow, whoever it was that night left this little souvenir. Gertrude took one look at the cufflink and went as white as the pearls in it. She clutched at the foot of the bed and stood staring. As for me, I was quite as astonished as she was. Where did you, did you find it? She asked finally with a desperate effort at calm. And while I told her, she stood looking out the window with a look I could not fathom on her face. It was a relief when Mrs. Watson tapped at the door and brought me some tea and toast. The cook was in bed, completely demoralized, she reported, and Liddy, brave with the daylight, was looking for footprints around the house. Mrs. Watson herself was a wreck. She was blue-white around the lips, and she had one hand tied up. She said she had fallen downstairs in her excitement. It was natural, of course, that the thing would shock her, having been the Armstrong's housekeeper for several years, and knowing Mr. Arnold well. Gertrude had slipped out during my talk with Mrs. Watson, and I dressed and went downstairs. The billiard and card rooms were locked until the coroner and detectives got there, and the men from the club had gone back for more conventional clothing. I could hear Thomas in the pantry, alternatively wailing for Mr. Arnold, as he called him, and citing the tokens that had precursed the murder. The house seemed to choke me, and I slipped a shawl around me. I went out onto the drive. At the corner, by the east wing, I met Liddy. Her skirts were draggled with dew to her knees, and her hair was still in crimps. Go right in and change your clothes, I said sharply. You're a sight, and at your age. She had a golf stick in her hand, and she said she had found it on the lawn. There was nothing unusual about it, but it occurred to me that a golf stick with a metal end might have been the object that had scratched the stairs near the card room. I took it from her and sent her up for dry garments. Her daylight courage and self-importance and her shuddering delight in the mystery irritated me beyond words. After I left her, I made a circuit of the building. Nothing seemed to be disturbed. The house looked as calm and peaceful in the morning sun as it had the day I'd been coerced into taking it. There was nothing to show that inside had been mystery and violence and sudden death. In one of the tulip beds, back of the house, an early blackbird was pe pecking viciously at something that glittered in the light. I picked my way gingerly over through the dew and stooped down. Almost buried in the soft ground was a revolver. I scraped the earth off it with the tip of my shoe and picking it up, slipped it into my pocket. Not until I had got into my bedroom and double locked the door did I venture to take it out and examine it. One look was all I needed. It was Halsey's revolver. I had unpacked it the day before and put it on his shaving stand and there could be no mistake. His name was on the silver plate on the handle. I seemed to see a network closing around my boy, innocent as I knew he was. The revolver, I am afraid of them, but anxiety gave me courage to look through the barrel. The revolver still had two bullets in it. 
I could only breathe a prayer of thankfulness that I had found the revolver before any sharp-eyed detective had come around. I decided to keep what clues I had, the cufflink, the golf stick, and the revolver, in a secure place until I could see some reason for displaying them. The cufflink had been dropped into a little filigree box on my toilet table. I opened the box and felt around for it. The box was empty. The cufflink had disappeared. Ooh, it's the end of chapter four. I like how each chapter ends with something exciting, like a body being found, or the cufflink vanishing. So I think clearly the cufflink has been taken by the niece. Like her reaction was so extreme and Rachel hasn't showed it to that many people. So frankly, I think it's the niece. I also realize my intro, I got the maid's name wrong. It's Liddy, not Libby. So, yeah. That was quite exciting. So we've had a murder and we've got the niece and the nephew there. The nephew's vanished in the night with a mysterious friend and his revolver has been found. And presumably the person who's been murdered was shot, I think, from the context. So I think we're going to stop there and we'll read chapter five tomorrow. And chapter five is called Gertrude's Engagement. Ooh, who is she engaged to? It's probably going to be John Bailey is my guess. I'm enjoying that. So, yep, we'll continue tomorrow with chapter five.